and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jarrah, and thanks for tuning in. Today with us, we have crew member Grace. Hey, everybody. And a special guest, Brittany. Woo! The USS Beyonce rides again, you guys! Woo! You may remember Brittany from our episode on Dr. Pulaski, and we are thrilled to have her back. Before we get into our main topic, just a reminder about our Women at Work Patreon. If you are able to support us, then that is fabulous. It helps us do things like promote the show and go to conventions to report and things like that. So you can go to patreon.com slash women at work. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash women at work. And in exchange, you get uh, access to exclusive content and there's some other perks in there. So uh, check it out if you are able to support us. And thanks for everyone who currently supports us because you are the best. So for our main topic today, we've been looking since we started the show at doing an analysis of the women villains in Star Trek. The problem is there are too many of them. So we couldn't possibly do them all in one episode. And some of them deserve a whole episode to themselves. Um, but we also wanted to look at it thematically. It's like, what is a good villain mean? And what does it mean to be like a woman villain in Star Trek? So that's why we did decide to pair a few of them together. And we will return to this topic in future episodes to cover some of the ones that we don't get to. So um, just to remind you, we have already covered a f- some of them in previous episodes, like Sila, the Romulan commander in Enterprise Incident, we talked about both of those in our Badass Romulan Women episode. We talked about Elan of Troyus and Dila in our Kirk's Love Interest episode. And we will be doing a Mirror Universe episode in the near future where we will talk about attending Kira. And then at the end, I'll like list some of the ones that we're going to get to in future episodes. But for today, we're going to start off with a couple of one-off characters because original series and Enterprise didn't really have a bunch of recurring women villains. So I thought we'd just pick a couple of the more memorable ones and discuss them, starting with the original series episode, That Which Survives. Not the audience at the end of this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, no, we did survive. She was not for us. Yes. Well, Brittany, do you want to give a quick synopsis of this episode? Yes, yes, I can do that. So the Enterprise gets to this planet. There's nothing there. They realize, oh, it's some kind of bizarre installation that is man-made or alien-made. And then the away team comprising of Sulu, McCoy, some rando, and Kirk go down there. Please, please, please. Geologist rando. Oh, I apologize. (laughs) That guy. Special type of rando. (laughs) A special breed of rando. Special breed of rando. And they encounter a woman who says she is for them. Then she touches them, and then they die. Except Sulu didn't die because she didn't touch him long enough. And then back on the Enterprise, magic happens, and they're flung some light years away. And I guess they're out of phase. And then they come back, and, you know, they resolve that situation. I feel like I'm leaving stuff out, but in the end, the bad guy dies. Yeah, I mean, basically, it turns out that this woman was a computer program that was designed to protect the planet, and the computer just chose the image of her because she was the last survivor of her people. But because they duplicated her so perfectly, the program that was partly her regretted killing the people. Yes, she did. Words matter, you guys, not actions. Yeah, also had really, really 
intense eyeshadow. Hey, that eyeshadow was on point. Yeah. That was triple intense eyeshadow. She was ready for Mardi Gras with that eyeshadow. Oh, yeah, totally. And awesome purple bell bottoms that also cover your belly button because it was 60s TV. You know what? That was probably a better synopsis than what I gave. It was just that character. She, well, there's that, yeah, that was kind of my response. Like, well, that, oh, well, she happened. Well, so the TV guide, when this episode aired, described her as the sad-faced siren whose touch means instant painful death. There are like three competing thoughts there that do not go together, though. <laughs> no, and sad face siren makes her sound like a specialized emoji. Clown. <laughs> Clown emoji. <laughs> sad over eyeshadow emoji. No, who am I kidding? I would do that eyeshadow totally if I could. This character could have been amazing. Like, yeah. this <laughs> entire episode trading on, traded on horror movie tropes that I found compelling. It's just that the execution wasn't so good. This is like the one time when I thought that the slow pacing of this particular era of TV could have worked really well with the creep factor. Mm -hmm. So Lee Merriweather, who played Locira, said about the character, when she was alive, she abhorred killing, but now she must kill because the computer is using her as a method of protecting the borders and repelling intruders. All I thought was, how in the world am I going to play a computerized image with a soul peeking through? I mean, I guess I think she did an okay job of that, but I think yeah. you're you're right, Brittany, that it there's just so many holes in this episode that it makes it kind of hard to take it super seriously. Yeah. A bigger sin is the fact that Lee Merriweather is a great emotive actress. If mm-hmm. you Absolutely. Batman, she's phenomenal as Catwoman. She could have totally kind of brought more of herself to that so that you have you really do have the Tears of the Clown situation. It's just, I don't know if it was directing or I don't know what happened, why that disconnect happened. Yeah, apparently the director, Herb Wallerstein, told her to play the last part straight where she's delivering the message um, from the real Locira about how her people were all dying. And he said, like, play it straight. She's a military gal, the commander of all of them. And she had been left alone and she knew this was the last message that any of her people would see. But I don't know, there's so much cool stuff in the concept, and it just didn't really come through. Like, this idea that she's the commander of all her people is a really cool idea for a woman in 1969 TV. And it just, I don't know, I don't think that you get to see that sense. She's more just like, I don't know, I guess a bit of a siren. Maybe if they hadn't had so many kind of subplottage going on at once, and they just focused on that one concept, they could have done more with it. Yeah. Which is a bizarre statement, given how slow this episode actually plays. <laughs> I know. Okay, so the whole, like, I am for you, Sulu, which, obvi- like, I don't know if I was the only one that thought about the episode The Perfect Mate, like, I am for you, Ulrich of Vault. I absolutely did. <laughs> I did, yeah. And so, I mean, it is kind of like she's playing on their masculine desire to, like, rescue a damsel in distress, at least with D'Amato at the beginning, or Rando, as we shall just continue to call him. We never got to see what she would have done if it was a woman. That would have been interesting, too, yeah. So there's always men on the ship, too. But, I mean, there was a lot of diversity in the episode, at least. Oh, there definitely was. I like yeah. that I, we saw that random black dude in engineering. And Dr. Mbango was back, and he alluded to a Dr. Sanchez. Yeah. And there's Lieutenant Rada on the bridge, although sadly she is a white woman in brown face. Yeah. (laughs) Sadly. You win some, you lose some. 
you lose a lot sometimes. Yeah. The reason I chose this episode for one of our TOS villains to look at is just because it's one of the few where she actually kind of stands on her own. I think a lot of the other women villains in TOS, they're paired up with a guy who's like, for instance, in Cat's Paw, there's Sylvia and the guy. And um, in The Conscious of the King, there's the girl and her dad. So I thought, like, let's look at one where it's really just her or a computer pretending to be her. Yeah, like I said, the concept is great, but then they kind of boiled her character down to just how hot she was. Yeah. How can she be so evil and so beautiful? Oh, wait, there are three quotes that just, like, stood out, if you don't mind me saying them. Go for it. Stop, or I'll shoot. I don't want to have to kill a woman. Oh, yes. (laughs) Are there men on this planet? Such evil. And she's so, so beautiful. She just tried to kill you. (laughs) <laughs> Again, that are there men on this planet thing, anyone else get the vibe that they're like, okay, is there a man here we can talk to? Someone sensible at all? Was anyone else picking that up or was that just oh, me? Oh, I hated that. Someone's not trying to suck our life force. I'm picking up what you put down. Yeah, and then at the very end where they, they're like, oh, she's obviously very intelligent, and then but everyone's like, oh, and beautiful, which is obviously more important. It really was. It was so bizarre. They ruined that moment because it's a compelling thought that this woman was so strong, she was so driven, she was so empathetic, that the computer just could not filter those things out, and it manifested itself. And she so was too powerful. Of that, then immediately Spock is like, you know, beauty doesn't just survive. And Kirk is like, au contraire, mon frere. (laughs) (laughs) So the end lesson is beauty, you guys. That's what survived. Beauty. Not even inner beauty. It's okay, guys. No matter what you do in life, your looks are what you'll be remembered for. (sighs) Good times. All right. Well, shall we proceed to the Enterprise episode, Ceasefire? And we're going to look at the character of Tara, who is an Andorian who serves under Shran and decides she doesn't want peace with the Vulcans. So she decides to sabotage his attempt to have peace negotiations. Like you do. So what were you guys' thoughts on this episode and this character? Can I do a compliment sandwich here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. First, Brett. Susie Plaxon is one of my favorite things ever in Star Trek. She's phenomenal. I loved her as a Klingon. I loved her as a Vulcan. She was great as a Q. My meat. Why did all of the humans forget how to act? (laughs) (laughs) And three... Her hair was on fire. <laughs> so that's all I got. <laughs> Wait, was the hair the other bread? The hair is the other bread. <laughs> Did you guys notice that though? No. It was pretty cool. One of the things I liked about her is that she's sexy without being sexualized. Like she's yeah. described in the original script as beautiful but fierce. And she's certainly a powerful woman and there's no like no one makes a compliment about how hot she is which happens a lot in star trek like they feel like they need to remind us we just get to appreciate it without being like shoved in our face that oh by the way she's really hot yeah that's that's the hair you guys like if you look if you remember or if you ever watch this again like all the males around her and there were only male andorians well there are actually three genders there but let's just go with the binary i apologize they have their hair all tidy and slicked down, and you can see their antennae moving, and her hair is, like, cradling her face in this great halo of hair that's kind of mussed up. It has that, I probably may have just had sex, or I just fought a dude, whichever one. She's got post-coital onion hair. <laughs> 
I mean, yeah. So I think that part of the problem was because Susie Plaxon is really well known in the fandom and she's a fabulous actress that the, like it was pretty predictable she was going to betray Shran. And so the episode was, I would say it's it's fairly predictable, but I really liked her as a a character. I think like in some ways she kind of reminded me of Valeris where she's yeah. this person who just like can't get over her racial prejudice and she there's this history with the other race and in this case, yeah, the Vulcans screwed the Andorians over royally by stealing this planet from them and forcibly relocating all these people. And it makes sense that she can't really super forgive that. And then she punches Archer in the face and like swings up on a beam and kicks him <laughs> in the chest and I'm just like, I love you. I do love you. And they wanted us to like imagine that both sides are guilty here and i'm just like the time for the vulcans to get mad and to take this planet was before they put all that money and time into terraforming this planet like as soon as they started production vulcan should have been like you know what screw that business and probably people would still be mad but they wouldn't be thinking about all their ancestors that were forcibly removed so i mean i don't know why i'm supposed to be empathizing with the Vulcans and not the Andorians. I think with this one, you're supposed to be neutral because at the end, they have the compromise is something that no one's really happy with. And and Shran is certainly the person you like better than Saval in this scenario. To be fair with Enterprise, I like Shran a lot more than a lot of people. Yeah, Shran is the one that sold me on this entire process anyways. I was like, okay, Andorians are ready to deal with this. I need to get over my emotions. But the entire time, I'm thinking, you know what, Andorians... I uh got your back. You want to ride hard on this? <laughs> I'm not there, but in my mind. All right. Anything else on Tara or Ceasefire before we move on? Yes, please. One yep. of my favorite lines came from Saval and T'Pol as they were being fired upon, and Archer was doing his human thing where he ran out and was trying to, you know, mm-hmm. be of use. What is their fixation with our ears? I believe they're envious. And I'm like, yes, yes. yes. (laughs) I like that, you know, in one episode, they did manage to imbue her with motivation. And it wasn't just like random, angry, sexy villain situation or something. I feel like kind of going over the female villains you have here. One of the things that makes them strong or stronger than average is the fact that most of the time they're trading on some kind of shared societal trauma that's giving them their anger. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate that out of Tara. Yeah. Well, that's certainly true with the next people we're going to look at, which are Lursa and Batora, the Dura sisters. Yay, queens of the boob windows. (laughs) When we posted this on Facebook to ask for people who had comments, the first comment was like, I don't have time to say anything right now, but Queen, can you just take a second to appreciate the boob window? (laughs) Yes. I love that Yes, we can. Always. Should have, like, every year just a moment of silence to appreciate the boob window. (laughs) Well, the patron saints of the boob window, the Dura sisters and Power Girl. Yeah, yes. That's true. Yeah, so I mean, I don't, what are your thoughts on the Jura sisters? I wish we had gotten to see more of them. Yeah, I mean, I have a quote from Barbara March from the 1993 interview with the Star Trek Fan Club of Canada magazine, where she said, I think the characters should have been allowed to go further. We should have been yeah. more terrifying, like the men who are very aggressive and brutal. We should have bumped heads or something. In comparison to the men, the Jura sisters were more sly and calculating. We really didn't do anything really devastating, like killing and maiming. I wanted to shoot someone. If we're awful, let us be really awful. Yeah, agreed. I did too. I think one of the things I like about those two, though, especially it ties in with their familial history, is that they kind of, their plot is more Romulan Cardassian based and not so much Klingon based. Because they, when they plot something, they're trading on like, 
your house honor. It's like, mm-hmm. you're going to bite your tongue because if you don't, all of Klingon society will be destroyed. <laughs> They're very Machiavellian kind of in that sense. Yeah. That's true. And then they were put in a really crummy situation because their honor was destroyed by their brother. I mean, obviously they supported him, but that's because they couldn't be on the council themselves. And it's a situation where if the women could have been on the council, maybe everything would have been different. But because they faced this discrimination, they went about trying to get their own influence and power and voice in like this really kind of devious roundabout way. It is so bizarre, so bizarre that Cleons do not allow women to, by implication, be heads of their own house and also sit on the high council. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense for this particular honor-based society. Yeah, and I mean, it was changed since the Undiscovered Country because we see yeah. the woman chancellor there. And then it, it doesn't really explain why that happened. But I agree with you. I don't think that it really makes sense in Klingon society that you would just arbitrarily bar a woman from, uh, from office. Once again, the only reason I can think that maybe they did that was to really differentiate Klingons from Romulans or Cardassians. Which yeah. is unfortunate. Well, and also to sort of show Klingons as a bit more barbaric, I guess. They are the noble savages of Star Trek after the Maquis. But even so, it was just one of those weird blind spots that I've always had with Klingon society. Because clearly their women are elevated. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, there's this line drawn with the Batleth in their dark, dark soul of Kronos. Mm-hmm. So Becca on our Facebook said the Duras sisters were great when we first meet them in the council chambers. Unfortunately to me, anytime we see them afterwards, they feel like a huge joke. Like they are the butt of a joke everybody kind of knows. So thoughts on that? That's not a lie, especially if you watch Generations, which I did again. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I think in Generations and um, the DS9 episode that they're in, they do really feel like they're, well, they're definitely not leading the plot. Like they're, they're working with other people. In DS9, they're basically like engaging in petty thievery and snuff, and snuggling. <laughs> Smuggling. <laughs> Snuggling. <laughs> they don't seem particularly snuggly to me. And yeah, it's, they always just seem, I mean, even in Redemption where they're, they're huge players, but they're basically being directed by Sela and the Romulans. So they're, they're not really the leaders of their own fate. They're just kind of hitching themselves to different trains to try to get power. And that's even worse because, um, Tor, she gets pregnant and she oh, right. actually has her baby. Mm-hmm. I believe. Yep. But anyways, she has her baby and she has to work through her son again. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't... This makes no sense. Yeah. I mean, on the plus side, Barbara March said in an interview with Get Critical, I felt that I did good by doing Lursa because I'm a large woman. I'm 160 pounds, big bones, big everything. When I meet large women who come to convention with their cleavage exposed and for the first time feel proud of their bodies with a sense of dignity and a kind of sexual aggressiveness, I am so grateful. That's important. I'm so glad that those women can come out and feel like they're beautiful. Oh, I do love that. Batty paws, Klingons. I love the Duras sisters. So I think the actresses do a tremendous job. Yeah. Those voices, <laughs> the way like Gwyneth Walsh as Bator just like hisses and Barbara March has this super deep booming voice. What, that line she delivered to Picard, it's not a threat. It's just an unfortunate truth. I was like, yes, <laughs> this is great. I'm here for that. <laughs> yeah. They seem like they're having a great time when they play the characters, and as such, the audience gets to have fun watching them sink their teeth into these characters. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. I enjoy them. I just think there was a bit of missed opportunity that they got. They could have maybe had a bit more power in their own, even in their own situation, rather yeah. than like teaming up with yeah. Soren or teaming up with 
Sela and led a plot by themselves. To be honest, I think if we actually gave them that kind of agency, then Star Trek Next Generation would have been much darker because Galron mm. would actually be in much more danger of not succeeding and Worf and, and Kern would be in much more danger. So for the particular ethos they were going for in Star Trek Next Generation, I understand, but they really screwed the pooch on those characters that I love. Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine how much it would suck? Like, you know, the, the whiny Jaros kid that they bring in in Redemption yeah. to be like, yeah. he should be a leader. How much would it suck to have to back that guy? Because he's uh... a dude. <laughs> It's like, yes, I know we're really smart, but let's just hold our tongue and back this kid. (laughs) The entire time when Galron is, you know, doing his operatic scene chewing and and all Mm -hmm. that, and Tyrell is like, Yule, I will bring you to heal, Kerr. And Galron's like, what is this, though? (laughs) I can't even stand you. (laughs) I'm sorry. What? (laughs) It was fantastic. It really was. But speaking of, slight tangent. Do you guys, I love going back to a time when Galron's bug eyes (laughs) didn't scare me. And I was like, I can be on board with that, Galron. When did it change for you? Was it in DS9 where he was, like, you thought he was a shapeshifter? Yes, it was. And then they progressively just made his character worse and worse so that he wasn't noble in the traditional Klingon sense. He was just a power hungry, I'm going to get a whole bunch of people killed. Yeah. Mm. I'm in it for the bloodshed guy. Hmm. So let's let's consider the boob windows for a second here. So <laughs> we can always consider the boob windows. Consider the boob window, if you will. I mean, as a kid, I was like, wouldn't that just invite you to get stabbed in the boobs? But <laughs> maybe that's why they have it because they're Klingons and they're like, I'm not afraid of getting stabbed in the boobs. I don't know. My kind of theory that I always had was they had the open cleavage because, like in Xena, they had a knife hidden in there that they could just pull out. <laughs> from between the knockers and, like, throw or stab as needed. They were just an extra holster there. I always thought it was just a conscious choice on their end. They were like, you know what? If we're going to have to use our feminine wiles, I guess I guess we can use them, and we'll just be sure to really make this sex the roughest it can be. <laughs> <laughs> and so that even, even Klingon males would be like, I don't know about this. <laughs> Look or touch if you dare. Yeah. Yes. That kind of thing. I feel like they're the embodiment of that business. Do you think that they are, like, constantly just having to be like, Duck! My eyes are up here! Yeah, I, I really hope so. I feel like they wouldn't do that. They'll just give a significant look to each other, and then that guy doesn't know what happened to him. Yeah. <laughs> he just wakes up in a back alley somewhere, missing both his hands. <laughs> All right. Klingons. We're going to move on to the next one, because this is a significant character. And one we will, I, well, we're going to return to to the Duras sisters when we do an episode on Klingon women at some point. This is a character we'll probably do a whole episode on at some point. Uh, but for now, we're going to spend some time talking about Win Adami. Ooh. Ladies, she is in my top five of villains of all time yeah. in Star Trek. And if I'm honest, if I have to rattle off villains, she's still in that top five. I think she's my top of all Oh, definitely of woman villains. She's my top. I go ahead and put the Borg Queen as the top because she has traversed multiple series and is still remains compelling. Mm-hmm. Despite what Voyager did to her in the last season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's the only reason why I put the Borg Queen first. And then I would have Kaiwen, Gold Ducat, mm. Moriarty. And then I guess 
I guess I'll put, you know, Khan in there. And then honorable mention goes to Catherine Janeway's conception of the Prime Directive. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Wynne is definitely one of my top villains as well. I think she's one of those ones that, uh, conceptually, it's really easy to get just rattled by her because you see her and you see the way she operates, the way she manipulates people, the way she takes gospel and kind of twists it in her direction. And you can't help but think, wow, there's still a bunch of people out there who are in charge in the world who do that, and that's really scary. Kaiwin is like a reflection of something we are kind that you kind of already are afraid of in real life, but taken input in a science fiction context. I agree with you. Here's why I'm going to change that agreement up a little bit. Here's okay. why I think she's scary for me. Yes, you're right in the political realm and how she kind of is a manipulator. She's also a true believer, as you alluded to, but I think that she is honest in her intentions, and that's the worst part, because she has legitimately helped yeah. a lot of people, and a lot of her decisions, you can legitimately say she was trying to do the right thing with no caveats. That's the worst part, though. You you, you want to hate her totally, but there's that bit that you can't, and that just you makes can't. you angrier. There's episodes, like, in the cards, I think is a really good example, where she comes to Cisco with her real honest opinion and asks for his advice in good faith. She isn't always acting hostile. So that's the one where she's asking if she should sign the the non-aggression treatment with the Dominion. And she's basically like, look, you can't promise to protect me, but, you know, I'm going to listen to you. And ultimately he tells her, like, I want you to delay, but I can't tell you not to do it. And there's just there's these little scenes here and there where you see that in some ways she could actually be working towards the same goals or at least like on similar motivations, but because her faith is kind of twisted and her desire for personal power keeps being thwarted and maybe even more than personal power, her desire for a connection with the prophets. Yeah. Yeah. Whether the prophets want it or not. Well, that's a big one because like in our modern times, like right now, as we exist, we can have faith in God, right? Mm -hmm. We are never actually sure. And like, it's the same thing you run into in like D&D. I play D&D a lot, a lot. But here, whether you believe the prophets are gods or not, they definitely exist. They definitely exhibit strong power. They definitely interfere or meddle or guide or are patrons of the Bajorans. And so to not have that connection with them, it's not theoretical for them. She has literally seen other people have this. And so from her perspective, and this is what I'm going to take, Cisco is a black man, and so from our standpoint, we know how important he is, right? Because of the revolutionary, just different thought that it takes to make a commander a black man. But in their time, he is a Federation commander, and he has all the privilege. So the only thing she sees is that this guy from the Federation is taking a connection that she really feels she's earned only by dint of him being born to the prophets. That isn't theory at all. And so that is that is actually a religious blow. That's enough to make people say never mind to the whole religion thing because you know they're opposite. The par rates exist. You know that. And so I can't be mad at her because if I had the option of like, 
my mom is mad at me, I'm going to go to my dad, then you do that, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she has this sense of, I mean, it's sort of like someone who worked, toiled really hard their whole career and then got passed over for a promotion by, like, the new guy. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Spiritually, though, so that yeah. even makes it harsher. Bigger deal. And so Alan suggested this quote uh, on our Facebook where Kaiwen says, you know, those of you who are in the resistance, you're all the same. You think you're the only ones who fought the Cardassians, that you saved Bajor single-handedly. Perhaps you forget, Major, the Cardassians arrested any Bajoran found to be teaching the words of the prophets. I was in a Cardassian prison camp for five years and I can remember each and every beating I suffered. And while you had your weapons to protect you, all I had was my faith and my courage. So that's, I think, another good example of this idea that First of all, that you can empathize with her, but also this idea that, you know, she kept her faith maybe more than anyone through the entire resistance and then devoted her lives to the prophets. And she repeatedly makes these kind of passive aggressive remarks like, well, you know, I wouldn't know that it's difficult to know what they say because they've never spoken to me. And so she's she's constantly... Passive aggression is her true superpower. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you have to have a superpower, <laughs> I would have mind reading. Yeah. Okay, so how do you guys... I know you're not mad at her for her change of allegiance, but how do you guys feel about the whole changing and sleeping with Ducat situation? I think that it, it wasn't what I was expecting, and it is a little kind of... I found the whole thing kind of camp and a little silly, honestly. But at the same time... For those of us who uh, had been going through the series and just really wanted to see some comeuppance on Kai Wen, her accidentally sleeping with a horrible enemy, that is a level of comeuppance that I was not <laughs> seeing coming. That's true. Also, I think all of us need to remember that Gul Tukat is a very charismatic man. That's true. Yeah. And this is also not the first time that she's been confronted with uh, the prophets not doing anything for her. Um, I mean, the Reckoning is a good example where the prophets possess Kira and also speak to Sisko, and she's basically like, what am I even doing here? So I get why Dukat is persuasive, but it did feel like a little quick to me for her to suddenly, and then she, she gives these kind of cheesy kind of villain lines about how, about the, what they're going to do for the Federation and whatever. Yeah. I will agree that her hooking up with Gul Dukat was, um, it lessened her character. It elevated his. Mm -hmm. But at that point in the story, in the narrative that they were trying to tell, you have to, especially how they ended it, you have to show her at the dark nadir, no matter how much it doesn't make sense, how campy it is, and how much you wish it just did not happen. This was her, she needs to seek some help moment. Yeah. Yeah. So I was reading in the Star Trek DS9 companion, it said that it made sense to Iris Stephen Bear for Wynn to be killed specifically by Ducat. This was because the pair had had sex, and according to a horror movie cliche, characters who have sex end up dead afterwards. So maybe thoughts from Grace on this one as our resident horror movie expert? Well, I would definitely say as my first response to that, why? Why? Why would you pick that cliche when you're essentially getting to be in charge of which cliches get used here? Why would you go with one that, if you're acknowledging it, you know probably know that it's pretty dumb and makes a bunch of people upset? Why would you pick that one to stick to? I mean, the show's not a horror show. It's in no way obligated to, by any means, follow those tropes or cliches. So why pick this one to go with? 
and it's certainly a sexist cliche like it's not generally like absolutely it's generally the woman who gets killed afterwards and it's like a a slut shaming device basically absolutely and i feel like that's especially prevalent in the fact that uh kai win is supposed to be a religious figure and this is kind of like their whole sullying of the righteous woman thing which adds kind of insult to injury in the aspect that sex and faith are repellent to each other yeah there's i mean there's some indication that she might have slept with the jaro in season two but certainly this whole thing with Ducat, it's really playing on this idea of like her you know her religious purity yeah or how she perceives it as purity yeah i think a lot of her character a lot of the interesting part for me anyway built in her character is this idea that she feels like because of her faith and because of her devotion she is owed something where in a lot of faiths I'm speaking from my experience as a Jew here. There's this idea of you are not necessarily owed anything because of your faith. You believe because you know it is right and you do the right thing because it is right, not because you expect to give any thanks. According to Maimonides, the biggest type of charity that you can ever do is one that you cannot possibly be thanked for and that faith is kind of supposed to be a thankless thing, but that's part of why you do it. Whereas she really expects... Like, she's just kind of sitting there waiting for, like, okay, where's the payback for this? Hey, a kind word goes a long way. True, that's true. And a little a little redeeming of faith is always nice, but... Yeah. Just, just the fact that she's really... She seems to be doing a lot of it because she expects something in return is... Yeah, reducing her faith to transactional, a lot of the times the way she did it was sketch at yeah. the best. <laughs> I think even some of her earliest encounters are some of the most evil like their very first one is in the hands of the prophets where she's going against keiko's school but she's also basically persuading neela the engineering officer to commit violence and uh basically promising her the prophets will reward her and that's that's a really big leap and then the beginning of season two where she's kind of backing Jaro and the circle in exchange for becoming Kai. That stuff is all really, really underhanded. And we actually see her, I think, get less underhanded for a bit when she becomes (laughs) Kai. Um, She's more just like passive aggressive. Probably because she believes she's in part gotten what she's deserved at that point. She's like, well, this is mine and therefore it was supposed to happen. I think I will disagree slightly on the Keiko student situation. Yeah. It was, I definitely think that she should not have contracted a bombing <laughs> of that school. Let me preface that with that because I don't want anyone anywhere to think that I think that she should have gotten a naive, religiously devout core engineer to do this because that's a gross abuse of power. Mm-hmm. Comma. <laughs> However, if you, ha- once again, the Federation is a colonial power and they have just gotten out of and an occupation where a lot of their culture was just decimated. So mm-hmm. for them to come in and to scrub that clean of even a little bit is just, it's pro- it's troubling. It's problematic. So a greater conversation about the place of religion alongside the Federation science is something, a theme that they explore the, the entire run of the show. Absolutely. But in this case, I mean, this was the first time it's really brought up. So I think she was justified in saying, can you add these elements? I don't think it's a fair comparison in, like, modern America where you're trying to change the text to include creationism alongside, you know, the evolutionary theory. I don't think those are parallel tracks here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. No. 
especially considering they're coming out of a war where a lot of their culture was oppressed. They are in a position where they're having, like you said, another group of people who are essentially privileged coming in and being like, okay, now we're going to teach your children and tell them how the world works according to our beliefs. Up until, like, pretty close to the end, you're mad at her character because you're, I think part of you as an audience member kind of realizes that and... Kira is kind of one of the representatives of being like, well, hey, this is our culture. You guys don't get to come in as guests and tell us how it works. But then when we get that scene in the end where Kira realizes, oh, you engineered this whole thing. That is just such a a jolt. And that part just horrified me so much. I remember when I first saw this episode, it threw me so hard. And I probably should have, in hindsight, seen it coming. But I think it really frightened me. Well, when you think someone is being honest with their religion and their faith, then you don't assume that such nefarious ends. Once yeah. again, I don't think this place should have been bombed. No, that was terrible. You- and like convincing Neela to try and assassinate Brile, is it? That she's trying to assassinate at the end yeah. where Cisco was like, no! Yeah. yeah. In that great <laughs> slow jump. Was it trampoline day on the promenade? But anyway, when we get that point of her being like, she had a right point, but she was using that to do something underhanded. That was, it's very scary. It's. I like when at the end of that, the trilogy at the beginning of season two about the circle, how the minute that she knows that Jaro's going to lose, she just cuts him loose. She's yeah. like, yeah, what even were you doing, Jaro? I never <laughs> supported that. Yeah. <laughs> she pairs her religion and her faith with pragmatism. Yeah. And it's so disturbing, especially when she actually helps people, because she is actually helping people. Like the Reclamator situation. Mm. I know that it really sucked for that small group of farmers to have the Reclamator removed. But she is trying to grow cash crop because they are a poor agrarian planet. The sheer scale Mm -hmm. of that is mind-boggling. So it's like, I understand what you're going for, Kaiwen. I agree with you in principle, but why are you doing it this way? Could you try to be maybe a little less nefarious? Style that back a little. But she's genuinely trying to help people. I think that she took too many terrible lessons from the Cardassians because she saw that their way kind of worked. That Mm. kind of, it worked really well. That's definitely, I had not thought of it that way before, and that's definitely a good point. Like, how much did the Cardassians suffer for having lost Bajor? They are still honored guests on that station. They still come and go as they please. The Federation still treats with them. So really, who lost when that happened? Mm -hmm. Just the Cardassians' egos, I guess. Exactly. But then you start thinking about what what made the Cardassians that way. It was like a small illusion in the Four Lights episode. Yeah. And TNG. That there's some really big issues on Cardassia. They went through, like, a worldwide famine, and so nationalism, fascism, like, it rose to, like, help as many people as they could. So, it's just terrible, but they didn't lose anything. Bajor lost everything. Mm-hmm. And they're still trying to re- rebuild, like, seven years later when she hooks up with Ducat. Yes. Which is, that's just hubris. That's the Shakespearean yeah. tragedy, right? Yeah. She's a tragic figure, you guys. 
Yeah. Lydia on Facebook says that when Adami is a villain who forces us to ask bad guy, and who would that be? Because everything she does is motivated by her love for Bajor and her people. She becomes more power hungry toward the end, but it comes from this incredibly flawed and broken place. I did not like her by any means, but she was incredibly well-rounded, and I'm really grateful her character existed. True story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I, I mean, I think that for me, what makes her one of these top villains is just that she has so much depth. And obviously, Louise Fletcher nails that character. <laughs> just, just She's kind of got experience at being good at being a woman who loves being in charge. I've never <laughs> seen her play a bad role. No, every role she does, she does well. Yeah, and she, she doesn't fall into, other than that, the whole the dying because she slept with two caught thing, she avoids a lot of tropes, I think. I think I've read her quote from Louise Fletcher before about how she saw herself as Margaret Thatcher in space. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I could definitely see that. Yeah. Or like an ancient bad pope, like the Black Pope. <laughs> but those aren't really tropes. So I think it's the fact that because she's so complicated, it's it's hard to just be like, oh, like she's a sad-faced siren or a praying mantis or like one of these other villainous women tropes that are used and end up kind of reflecting badly on our entire gender. Mm. Yeah. I mean, she's not for anyone. Yeah. She is for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I am for you, Galducott. But, and I think we should all recognize that in the end, she did do the right thing. Yeah. Lilt question mark. Yeah. Yeah. So the right thing? Yes, that's exactly... Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Only because the pot race didn't choose her, though, which is exactly. like, oh, God. It's like you were so mad at not getting chosen by the prophets that you jumped ship to the complete other side and then they didn't choose you either. Ouch. You guys, woman scorned. Okay, you can use that. Sure. That's not a eureka moment. I'm sorry that came off like that. <laughs> I mean, I think you can, but I think that she's a bit deeper than just oh, like... She's yeah, and yeah. It, and it isn't like a boyfriend dumped her and she went crazy, which is what we're going to see with the next character. Yeah. The actual literal <laughs> god said, never mind, part two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the clouds parted, the prophets looked down and they said, hmm, never mind. Oh no, wait, there's this, this nice Federation fella here. We're going to go for him instead. I honestly think that if at any moment the... The prophets, I mean, they didn't even have to speak to her. They just had to give her, like, a flash of a nice villa somewhere. And she would have been happy the rest of her life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it would have been great. It just speaks to how alien and bizarre and out of time the prophets are that they couldn't even muster that. Yeah. Poor Wynn. I don't know if that's the conclusion we want, though. No, but it's (laughs) a conclusion. I don't know. I guess awesome character. Uh, Love to hate her. She should have had her own action figure, but she did not. Her hat is the bee's knees, you guys. It's great. If you accessorize that, if it comes with, you know, Kai accessories, Mm -hmm. maybe a Kai Opaka, you know, habit that you can put on to Kai Win. Mm -hmm. Maybe it comes with a book of verses to misinterpret. Yes. And one of those orb boxes. Yeah. yeah, That will never open because, you know, she's not. (laughs) They don't speak to her. It would also need to come with, like, interchangeable hands so that one could be pointing the finger and another one could be shaking its fists. Yes. 
we're the worst, best people. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we could talk for, about Kaiwen for longer, and we will return to her in a future episode for sure. But we need to get to our last villain for this episode, who is Seska. Oh, Seska. Compliment sandwich. Yeah, <laughs> go for it. You make that sandwich, serve it up, and we'll eat it. <laughs> First bread. Why, though, Seska? <laughs> Middle bread. You are kind of actually amazing, you Cardassian Bajoran weirdo. <laughs> Last bread. Really, though, why? <laughs> Baby? Yeah, what the hell? How was your, What was your long-term plan with that, for real? Where do you go from there, Seska? I think that was really just the actress was pregnant and they wrote it in. God, I hope so. So they were going to bring her back and do this whole revenge on Chakotay thing. And uh, Martha Hackett got pregnant and she was worried they wouldn't have her back. Um, But she told them and they were like, oh, that's awesome. We're just going to write it in. Okay. Bad decision. The worst part of that character is the fact that they linked her so much with Chakotay, which was senseless. Yeah. And then uh, with Kula, Ma- Maj Kula, and I was like, no! Double no! Hard pass! <laughs> Just so much of that character is based on the kind of bitches be crazy thing. Yeah. Just in- crazy ex-girlfriend. Yeah. But if you cut through that, mm-hmm. even her bitches be crazy moments, you're like, but bitches be smart, though. Yeah, bitches be long-term planning, sort of. Because she's still Cardassian. Yeah. Cardassians are all about the slow burn, I guess. Totally. So when we first meet Seska, she's, we think she's a Bajoran, and the actress thought she was a Bajoran. She wasn't told she was a Cardassian spy for, like, until the episode had happened. Oh, that's fantastic. Although she was kind of annoyed about it. She's like, I would have been playing this, some subtext in here before. And so in that, and then it's the Cardassian spy episode where she's, like, really amping up with Chakotay, and she's, like, trying to snuggle him in her quarters, and he's all like, we agreed this wasn't gonna work, and he's she's stealing mushrooms for soup for him, and uh, then it turns out she's Cardassian, but she obviously, even before that, had been planning to deal with the Kazon? Yeah. So it, it isn't super clear whether she leaves because she was all intending to all along or because they discover her secret and she knows they won't accept her. There's a lot of loose threads with Seska. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah. your why your bread. Her most compelling relationship was not with Chakotay or the Baj. It was with Bolana. Yeah. They I would say that's really amp that. It would have been really cool to see um Bolana more of Bolana and Seska being, you know, catty friends together and not being totally cool with their position on Voyager and then watching that turnaround happen and watching Bolana have to deal with that would have been really interesting. Bolana's sense of alienation and general disconnect from everyone and everything around her until season's end was one of the best things about her and Absolutely. it could have really been amplified if they had done that with Seska and stopped focusing on her and Chakotay. Yeah, and Seska's kind of like the devil on Bolana's shoulder. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It helps them both. So Chris on Facebook said, One thing they never made too clear about Seska, why didn't she risk simply admitting her initial deception to the Voyager crew and trusting they'd at least share a common goal of getting home, similar to how the Maquis were incorporated despite previous conflicts? The risks of turning into unknown Delta Quadrant Raiders seem roughly around the same level of danger. She's Cardassian. She can't do that with the Maquis. Deep cover. I think... 
think she made it clear that she doesn't agree with Janeway. Like, she fundamentally yeah. disagrees with Janeway's mm-hmm. approach, and she doesn't think that she actually has a good chance of getting home if she plays the safe Federation route. And so she wants to pair up with the Kazon. The thing that bothers me is, I think she is really smart. And we actually get to see that, someone pointed out, really in worst case scenario, when we see that she's, you know, programmed this hollow program to kind of trap everyone in this awful death scenario. Yeah. So like, she's super smart, but then she goes off with these super thuggish, sexist brutes. And yes, she's exercising kind of power behind the throne, but Maj Kala is demeaning her on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. It's the kind of thing where you're like, I know you're stranded in the Delta Quadrant, but you can still do better. You know, after they concluded Seska's arc, right, and you're, I'm still watching Voyager, I forgot about it. I was like, I'm not going to be mad anymore because, you know, things and such. And then I got mad all over again in, I guess, season seven when they had the episode Shattered. And you have Chakotay traversing the different um, timelines on the ship. And Seska, she puts one and one together immediately and she is on the ball sabotaging all the things it took literally everyone across timelines to stop her and even that the bride of chaotica business they got in it took all of that (laughs) yeah i am mad that you didn't do more of this when you had her yeah you jerks Yeah, instead, I really dislike the whole pregnancy storyline, like stealing Chakotay's DNA for her pregnancy. It's basically like, let me insult your masculinity. And then he's like, my masculinity is totally insulted. Let me steal a shuttle and redeem it, even though everyone else thinks it's a terrible idea. And then everyone else in Voyager is like, well, that sucked, but I get it because his masculinity. (laughs) Good grief. Bitches be tripping. Yeah, I think Maneuvers, the one where she kidnaps him and and steals his DNA, is really just full of bad sort of bitches-be-crazy stereotypes, and you don't really get to see her being that smart. Not to mention that whole, I have your baby, so now you kind of, like, owe me for everything is such a harmful stereotype. Yeah. I mean, like, that's every dude's primal fear, right? He accidentally gets some woman pregnant. And then she comes back and takes him for all that he has. And then she's basically stalking him. Yeah. Why would you do that? I mean, of all the things you can characterize on this show that is made in not 1950, this is what you do. That that trope just makes me so upset. Yeah. I mean, it's something you hear a lot in arguments against a woman's right to to choose, actually. And uh, it's really... Uh, it's. I think it's unfortunate that they brought this in here. I think it's, I don't know, I didn't buy it, and it seemed beneath Seska and beneath Chakotay. Yeah. It was beneath everyone on that show forever and all time. Yeah. In perpetuity. Yeah. But yeah, Torres says basically that she thinks that Chakotay was in love with Seska, but then found out everything he knew about her was a lie, I guess? I don't know. I don't ever see him really being in love with her. Yeah, I'm not seeing a lot of love. I'm seeing a lot of, oh, you're around. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm here, you're here. Yeah, and Torres is like, can you imagine what it must have been like for someone as private as Chikoti to be publicly humiliated by someone he loved? And then as if that weren't enough, she came back to taunt him in front of the entire bridge crew. I just wish they had, instead of doing that, just amped the situation with the fact that they are Maquis, she is a Cardassian. 
she sold them out down the river probably numerous times and now all of them are re are remembering every time that they got so close and failed instead of linking her to Chakotay and not giving her that big sister mentor relationship we want between her and Bolana. Yeah. Yeah, I think it would have been cool if we would have got to see because so Seska talks about how she reached out to the Kazons because we need allies if we're going to get home. And the Kazons obviously aren't trying to get her home. But it would have been cool to see if she had actually built an alliance of other races against Voyager. Oh, that would have been fantastic. Yeah. Like in season four, just all of a sudden, there's Seska. It's like, what are you doing, Seska? It's like, these are my peeps at my back. You'll just you'll <laughs> see. It's not just homage, right? It's yeah. other folks. Because you've had for like three seasons now, screwed over a number of people. We heard about our tourists. We, we heard about that business. <laughs> There's just so much wasted potential with Seska. Yeah, exactly. Like maybe Seska teams up with those ladies on the favorite sun planet that oh, suck yeah. men's maybe. life force. Please don't ever have anyone team up with those ladies because that's <laughs> storyline. I was like, oh, poor Harry. You have the validation that you want. But the <laughs> downside they gonna kill you, bruh. <laughs> oh, man, that was such a bad episode. Anyway, um, I mean, so just going back to the, the pregnancy thing for a bit, because, you know, clearly, this is how well, at least like me and Grace interpreted this as a bit of a, I would say a negative trope. Um, but just to give another opinion, Ellie on Facebook said, I also think it's interesting that the Seska Chakotay, quote unquote, relationship reverses the trope of a man being able to manipulate a woman through their child. The disturbing ambiguity of Seska's comment that she took Chakotay's DNA while he was unconscious made me feel pretty uncomfortable until it was made obvious that it was from an injection she gave him. So that was, uh, that's another take on it. Yeah. No. I'll have to disagree with this particular Facebook user. Women always use their children, or when they have them, and there's a contentious relationship, and there are children, they have generally been shown as the aggressor in using those children to get to the father. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We have all these stories about how men, righteously persecuted, having to fight for their right to even be involved with, with um, child rearing, which is such a... It's such a 180 from when dudes could just take women's children. Yeah. Before, you know, and this, the preference given to women in these situations is, is response, is a backlash to those hundreds of years where men just took women's children. So I'm going to have to disagree with that person. I mean, certainly Seska violated Chicote, and that's not yes. cool. That's disturbing. I, I also disagree because I think that the stereotype that I see way more often is that women use kids to manipulate their fathers. And this is like led to a whole father's rights movement and um, subset of the men's rights movement. And there are some legitimate changes that could be made to court and custody processes. Like there's a lot of problems on all sides, yes. but you know, and there's a book uh, by Michael Kimmel called angry white men that talks about the stats and how there's, it's actually not as unequal as the father's rights movement would have people think that most custody cases, the vast majority are decided without going to court. And when people do go to court, it's not nearly as unequal as people claim. So it's not just like kids are automatically given to the mom. I feel like that to that point, it depends on like the state you're in. Yeah. Some states are a bit more regressive than others. Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of that, but yeah, on the balance, I think it's gotten better. I think there's legitimate space for men to really seek out, you know, 
the things that they've been denied. But once again, that's a patriarchy issue. It's not women be tripping issue, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, and there are other countries where there is like very strong maternal preference and there are other places where it's a strong paternal preference. And um, I don't agree with either of those. But in a lot of ways, the fact that there is inequality is, like you said, a symptom of the fact that there was unequal marriage for so long. And this, so there was an assumption in the case of maternal preference that like women are innately better at caring and men won't be able to give their kids the attention they need because they're just better at earning money. And like, that's, that's not like reverse sexism. It's a symptom of the unequal society that was created and originally privileged men. Women didn't come up with that business. <laughs> no. Laws were made and could only be prosecuted by dudes for so long. So, I... so yeah. So Seska, I feel like reinforces this idea that women are crazy and using men's kids against them. Uh, and certainly, I mean, the fact that she uh, assaults Chakotay is not cool or redeeming. And uh, I don't think, though, that it's treated so much like a joke as it is in some other series. I would agree. Um, okay, so any other thoughts on Seska? Seska, Seska, Seska. What could have been? Like much of Voyager, she was um, lost potential. But certainly interesting. So yeah, this is, that's our selection for this episode. Next time, I think for sure there, we are going to talk about the female changeling, the Borg queen, uh, and then some other ones that we have to, we're, we'll fit in, uh, either in the next episode or a future one. Valeris, the sphere builders from Enterprise. We got Janice Lester. There's Martia from Star Trek Six. There's Sylvia from Cat's Paw, Kara from Spock's Brain, Nona from Private Little War, lots of other original series, one-offs, Ardra from Next Generation, uh, possibly Admiral Satie from The Drumhead, uh, Kayla from the Enterprise episode Two Days, Two Nights. So yeah, we got a lot more to cover. So it'll be another few episodes. We're not doing them like directly one after another. So it'll be a little ways from now, but hope you enjoyed the first installment of our look at women villains. I will just say before we wrap up quickly that we had uh, another comment from Mary Denise Smith on Twitter, just generally about these characters, that she liked that they were motivated by recognizable impulses, vanity, greed, patriotism, that they were baddies mostly from the Federation point of view. So I thought that that was a, a good point. It wasn't just like they were sitting there like cackling maniacally and that's how we knew they were evil. There was little to no mustache twirling. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Brittany. Where can people find you elsewhere on the internet or is there just anything else you would like to say to sign off? You know, um, just find me on Facebook at Women at Warp. That's all I have to say, really. Thank you for having me on because, as always, it's fantastic. I welcome disagreements and critique. So if you're on Women at Warp and you want to call me out, we can tussle. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If you want to get in touch with any of us, you can go on our Women at Warp Facebook page and comment uh, on this post. Uh, you can also email us at crew at womenatwarp.com or go on Twitter at Women at Warp or go on our website, womenatwarp.com. So lots of ways to get in touch with us. We always love feedback. Grace, where can people find you elsewhere on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at BoneCrusherJank. I live there. Please come visit. I'm so alone. <laughs> and you can catch me, I'm Jarrah, on TrekkieFeminist.tumblr.com or on Twitter at Jarrah Penguin. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.